Hello and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. It's lovely to welcome you all back from the break and if you're a new listener, it's wonderful to welcome you for the first time. We'll be back to our normal way of working this week. Um, first of all, we will have the story. Then there'll be some discussion about the story and the folklore and history of the food ingredient. Then they'll be followed by the recipe at the end. This week, our story is The Clever Little Shoemaker, as collected and translated by Laura Gonsenbach and adapted. If you're listening comfortably, then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there was a shoemaker who worked the entire day and he still couldn't get enough to live by without worries. One day he had earned four coins and someone came out in the seat and cried out, beautiful ricotta for sale, beautiful ricotta for sale. Oh, thought Master Giuseppe. I can afford to buy some ricotta for three coins. If I earn yet another coin, I can buy some bread for two coins and I'll have a splendid meal at lunchtime. So he bought the ricotta for three coins and he put it on the table while he continued to work. It was very hot and all at once tons of flies settled on the white ricotta. So Master Giuseppe took a piece of leather, he thwacked that ricotta with all of his might and he killed nearly all the flies. Aha, he said, I am a truly brave shoemaker. I think I'll stitch that on a sash. 500 dead and 300 wounded. He was pleased with the look of it once it was finished and then he said to himself, now, I think I'll set out into the world and seek my fortune. I'm better than just a shoemaker. He carefully packaged up the ricotta and wandered off. When he came to a city, he showed off his sash and all the people were astounded by the brave shoemaker. Now it so happened that news of the shoemaker reached the ears of the king who thought, I could certainly use a brave man like this. He had some reasons, and he had the shoemaker brought to him. Are you the man that killed 500 and wounded 300? asked the king. I am, your majesty, replied the shoemaker. Well, if you're so brave, you must do something for me. You see, in the forest outside the city, there is a terrible wild giant. Each year we sacrifice a human being that the giant eats. Otherwise, he'd come into the city and murder every single one of us. I want you to go into the forest and kill the giant. If you do this... You can marry my daughter. The shoemaker, well, he still looked not exactly like he wanted to do it. So the king threw in his last card. He said, if you don't, I'll have you beheaded. Oh, no, I thought Giuseppe, how unlucky I am. I'm going to lose my life. Either the giant's going to eat me or the king's going to have me beheaded. However, because he was cunning and he was tricky, he didn't lose his courage. Also quite fancied marrying a princess. Now, he bought some plaster and set out for the forest. Along the way, he kneaded some little balls out of the plaster and ricotta and put the balls into his pocket. After he'd gone, what was fairly long way into the forest, especially for a shoemaker who was more used to an urban setting, he suddenly heard a great deal of noise as if someone was breaking off a large batch. Aha, thought, that's definitely the giant. And he climbed a tree. Shortly afterwards, the giant came and he was frightening to see. I smell the flesh of a human being. I smell the flesh of a human being. When he raised his eyes and saw Giuseppe sitting in a tree, he said, so you're the one, come down here. I've got something to say to you. Go away, the shoemaker cried out. If you don't leave me in peace, I'll break your neck. You little rascal, the giant yelled and laughed. You tiny man, how do you think you'll manage that? Oh, Giuseppe said. You don't know how strong I am. 
You see these marble balls? I'm going to squeeze them and make powder out of them in my fingers. That's how strong I am. Upon this, he takes the plaster balls, squeeze them with his fingers and spread the powder down the ground. The giant really believed they were marble balls because he wasn't very bright. He couldn't see that well. He said, come down, my cousin. Stay with me. When two such strong men as we join forces, there's nothing that can stop us. When the shoemaker heard the giant call him cousin, he felt a little bit safer and climbed down the tree with pleasure and said, good, we'll join forces. Take me to your hut. So the giant led him to his hut. And he said, now let's divide the household chores. Why don't you go to the fountain and fetch the water? I'll light the fire. The jug's just standing over there. The giant pointed to a jug that Giuseppe certainly couldn't lift. It was nearly as big as him. Forget that, said the tricky shoemaker. I'd prefer if you give me a really strong, long rope. I'll bring the entire fountain right here, right away. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to run to the fountain every day. When the giant heard this, he became even more frightened and thought, my, what a strong man he is. He said, OK, don't forget it, forget it, I'll take the jug myself. When he took the jug and went to the fountain, Giuseppe sat in the hut and enjoyed himself. And when he returned with water, he said, you could at least look out in some wood in the forest, otherwise we won't have enough. The axe is over there. It was, however, such a large and heavy axe that there was no way Giuseppe could move it. It was nearly as big as him. Forget this, he said. I'd prefer it if you gave me a strong and long rope, then I could wrap it round an entire tree and drag it here. Then we'll have plenty of wood for a long time. This man is really strong, said the giant, and he went to himself to look in the wood because he was scared of the strong shoemaker. Giuseppe remained sitting there, relaxed and delighted. When the giant came back with the wood, he placed a large kettle on top of the fire and cooked supper. After they'd eaten, he took out a large, thick iron pole and said, Let's play a little game. Let's see who can carry this pole around the longest. And he got out a large, thick iron pole. Good, I like games, said the shoemaker. But um, first, you must wrap the thick end of the pole very carefully, because when I wheel that pole round, I'll go so fast. Can't see what I'm hitting. Might even smash your skull. The giant became so terrified when he heard this. He said, well, then um, I've never really liked this game. So we perhaps we won't play it. Come on, let's go to bed. Where should I sleep? Said the shoemaker. Just come on, the giant says, there's loads of space in the bed for both of us. It's a really big bed, and you're not very big. The two of them lay down in the giant's bed, and this giant was soon snoring, as loud as you can imagine a giant would snore. The shoemaker was still afraid of him, and he thought it wasn't wise to stay in that bed. Crawl quietly out the bed, placed a large pumpkin in the place of where his head had been. Then he hid beneath the bed. Shortly afterwards, the giant woke up. And because he was afraid of the strong shoemaker, he thought, the little man's sleeping. Now's the time to kill him. Who knows? Maybe he'll murder me. All at once he stood up, took the heavy iron pole, mistook the pumpkin for the shoemaker's head and thwacked it with all his might. So the entire pumpkin was squashed. Right at that very same moment, Giuseppe sighed loudly from beneath the bed. What's wrong with you? A flea bit me very hard in the ear, Giuseppe answered. The giant was completely petrified by this and he lay back down in bed and he stayed still. Giuseppe crawled out from beneath the bed very quietly, threw the crossed pumpkin underneath and lay down as well. He kept trying to think of a way to kill the giant because he thought, I can't stay here forever. If I return to the city without doing what the king commanded, I'll have my head cut off. So he thought and he thought. But when the birds brought news of the dawn the next morning, he had an idea. 
he said to the giant, Today I think we should just have a huge meal of macaroni. You cook a large kettle of it and when we're done eating, I'll open cover my belly first and you can see I can eat the macaroni without chewing it. Afterwards you can slice your open your belly so I can see what your macaroni looks like. It'll be a competition. The giant agreed because he liked competitions and he wasn't very bright. He placed a huge kettle of water on the fire to cook a lot of macaroni. Meanwhile, the shoemaker swiftly stepped outside and went into the wood. He tied a large sack beneath his neck that sank down to his stomach. When he returned, the giant said, Macaroni's done, let's see who can eat the most. Good, let's go at it, said the shoemaker. Both of them began eating. The giant ate very fast. Well, Giuseppe just threw all of his macaroni in the sack and kept saying, keep going, don't you see I'm eating much faster than you? Eventually, after a lot of this, all the macaroni was eaten. And Giuseppe said, no, just give me a knife. Let's see what the macaroni looks like. I'll begin. The giant gave him a large knife. Master Giuseppe sliced open the sack with one powerful cut. All the macaroni fell to the ground. You see, he said, I ate my macaroni without chewing it. Now it's your turn, he said. And he handed the giant the knife. I did mention that it wasn't very bright. And he made a huge powerful cut down his belly so all his intestines fell out. And he sank to the ground with a great roar. That's the way it should be said Giuseppe, the brave shoemaker. You saved me the trouble of killing you. Since the giant was now dead, Giuseppe stepped up to him and calmly cut off his head, which he took to the king. Your majesty, here's the giant's head. The deed is done and the giant is dead. It was a fierce battle, but what defence can be made against a man who killed 500 and wounded 300? The king was as vexed as vexed could be. He didn't want to give the shoemaker his daughter in marriage and his daughter definitely didn't want to marry him. She'd made her thoughts very clear after the shoemaker had left. What a fool I was to promise him anything, he thought. But if I don't keep my promise, he's really strong. He killed the giant, perhaps he'll kill me. So he said to the shoemaker, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 we must arrange for the wedding without delay. Um, but there's just one, just little job. A little job, news to be son in law. You won't mind doing that for me before the wedding. Well, you see, there's a unicorn. It lives in another wood. You can just catch him and bring him along. I think a live unicorn would be smashing for the wedding celebrations. No one else has got a unicorn. Imagine your wedding with a unicorn. Everyone will be talking about it for months, years even. Now, what he hadn't said was the unicorn was the wildest and fiercest beast that ever ran on four legs. And the king felt sure the shoemaker could never catch it alive. Either it would kill him or he would come back defeated. In which case there'd be no wedding. So both he and his daughter would be happy. The shoemaker took a halter and an axe and went on foot into the wood to catch a unicorn, thinking all the way. Soon he heard the sound of galloping hoofs and there was the unicorn charging down on him with its eyes flashing, its long horn held like a spear ready to run him through. Not so fast, not so fast, my friend, said the brave little shoemaker. He waited until the long glittering horn was within a foot of him and then he dodged behind a big tree. The unicorn was going too fast to stop itself and the horn went into the tree and it stuck there and it really stuck there the unicorn kicked and it struggled and it neighed and it stamped and it kicked and it struggled and it neighed and it stamped and it kicked and it struggled and it neighed and it stamped but that horn was not coming out of that tree the shoemaker sat down on a bank of moss and waited until the unicorn was tired out put a halter around its neck and with his axe cut away the tree from around the horn and led it back to the king I'm delighted, said the king. He wasn't delighted. Absolutely delighted. And obviously now we've got a unicorn, nothing to stop the wedding. And we would definitely have it at once. The problem is, 
Macy, you'll understand. You're going to be a ruler too one day. I've just heard there's a wild boar that's doing terrible damage and killing everyone it meets. Which, okay, it happens, but I intended to give all of my subjects a holiday for the wedding. And how can they enjoy a holiday with the fear of death on them? You don't want that hanging over your wedding. So just go and catch the boar for me, would you? And then we can have the wedding in peace. I'll give you a hundred huntsmen to help you. Um, hunting a wild boar is the kind of sport I enjoy most, said the brave little shoemaker, who was also lying. Well, but what do I need with your hundred huntsmen? However, the king made him take them along. He'll never catch that boar, said the king, and he went into the palace and told his daughter there'd be no wedding, even though there was a unicorn, because she had been worried she'd seen that unicorn. As the shoemaker and the huntsman went along the road, they met a crowd of people running towards them. The boar, the wild boar, they were screaming and shouting. The huntsman took to their heels... The brave little shoemaker was left all alone, and the huge bull was rushing at him, phoning and gnashing at its tusks. The shoemaker turned like a sensible man. He ran, but he didn't run far. There was a chapel by the side of the way, and through the door of the chapel he ran, and out again of the window. The wild boar charged after him into the chapel. The shoemaker raced round the outside of it and slammed the door on it. Now the creature was too heavy and clumsy to leap out of the window, so it was trapped. The creature was roaring and running around inside the church, but, you know, it couldn't get out. And the brave little shoemaker went back to the king. I've caught the boar. Now you can do what you like with it. But first we'll have the wedding, because I'm quite tired of being put off. The king couldn't think of any more excuses. So he apologised to his daughter, and the shoemaker married the princess. He was as proud as a peacock. And by now, the princess was proud too. She thought she'd got a great warrior hero for her husband. They hadn't been married long. And one night, she heard the shoemaker talking in his sleep. He was dreaming he was back in his workshop. And he said, I must finish off these boots before morning. Where is the soft red leather? In the morning, the princess went angrily to the king. You have disgraced me forever. As not a prince, I thought at least you'd give me a warrior hero for a husband. But he's only a miserable shoemaker. The king was greatly shocked, not because his daughter's manners were lacking, but because he had married his daughter to a shoemaker. But he thought of a plan to comfort her. Tonight, he said, when your husband's asleep, open the door between the bedroom and the dressing room. The dressing room will be full of armed men. They'll creep him, they'll bind him with chains and iron before he can wake up, and we'll put him in a ship, and the ship will sail away to the other end of the world. The princess thought that was quite a good idea and agreed. Now it so happened that the brave little shoemaker had a faithful page and the faithful page overheard what the king had said to the princess and off he went to tell his master. That night when the princess thought the shoemaker was asleep she got up and softly opened the bedroom door. She peeped out, saw the dressing room was full of armed men and then went and lay down again. Immediately the shoemaker, who was only pretending to be asleep, began to talk. I must finish off these boots before morning. Where is the soft red leather? I've killed 300 at one blow, 500 at one blow, slain two giants, caught a unicorn and a wild boar. Is it likely I should be afraid of anyone out there in a dressing room? And when the armed men who were in the dressing room waiting to bind the shoemaker heard these words, they threw down their weapons and their strong cords and they fled. And there was not one of the king's subjects who dared to touch the brave little shoemaker after that. So... The king had to make the best of his son-in-law, and the princess had to make the best of her husband. There was a lot to be said for him. He was merry, and brave, and clever, and in the end, she came to love him.
And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale, and I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. So, what did you think of the tale? I promise I didn't choose it because it's got a fierce unicorn in it. I know that if you're used to listening to these, you know my feelings about unicorns, and they are not fluffy. This unicorn was not fluffy, but that isn't why I chose it. I chose it because of how he killed the giant. I imagine you've heard this tale before, but possibly not this variant. You've probably heard the German variant presented by the Brothers Grimm as the Brave Little Tailor, or the English version, which is very similar and known as the Valiant Little Tailor. You may even be interested to know there are at least 14 Italian versions of this tale. The variant is an interesting one, as I said, because of the way the giant is killed, using the trick of getting him to gut himself. It's the same way that Jack the Giant Killer kills one of his giants. In most versions of this tale, there are two giants who the tailor winds up to the point where they end up killing each other, leaving him alive. But I was interested in how the Sicilian variant, as collected by Laura Gonzenbach, as I mentioned earlier, contains the same part of the tale that the very British Jack the Giant Killer did. I don't suppose we'll ever really know. And as I discussed when I told the tale of Jack the Giant Killer in a previous episode, it wasn't a folk tale which goes back into the depths of English Welsh history but a tale that possibly only first appeared in recognisable format in the early 18th century in a chapbook. There were other theories, and you can discover them by visiting the earlier episode. I'll pop those in the show notes. Maybe the answer is sailors. They do get around, and I love the fact that the Sicilian tale has a bag full of macaroni, and the English version has a big bag of pudding. The giant killing method might be the same, but the food is definitely representative of where the story is told. That's how I was fascinated about how big a part the Rikossa played in this tale. As in the Northern European variant, the flies are attracted to jam. But here, Ricotta has the starring role of fry attractor, and then goes on to feature again as a way to trick the giant. However, I've been a little bit distracted from my tale, and before I go on to talk about the folklore and history of Ricotta, which I hope you will find as fascinating as I did, I must address how this yet another jack tale and how the behaviour of the princess is understandable, if you look at it from her perspective. Let's start with the princess. Yet another woman of a folk tale with no name, and very little agency. But as she is in a Sicilian tale, she does fight back as much as she can. I'm not sure whether Laura's gender as a translator has any influence on this story, but she does at least present the princess as fighting back, even though she knows this is probably futile. I've addressed the highly patriarchal nature of Sicilian society previously, but it is against this background you must set our princess and her behaviour. Although she knows what she must do, what her father says, she does argue about marrying a stranger, and her father does actually try to avoid fulfilling his promise, he realises what an impact it will have on his daughter. Essentially, though, she is still collateral damage to her father's whims. The one thing she does have is status as a princess, which is why she's so angry when she finds out that he is a shoemaker, and not just a hero. The one thing she could ask of her father is that she marries someone of similar status, because it's genuinely all she has. Her father does at least recognise this, and tries to remedy his actions. Well, you know, as long as he doesn't have to sacrifice anything himself. Also, let's have a look at Giuseppe, the shoemaker, an unlikely hero. He is, however, less unlikely if you cast him in the Jack role in this folktale, although his name translates to Joseph. He is determined to go out and make his fortune from nothing, quick-witted, not worried about being slightly deceitful to get what he wants, and he's not afraid to be a braggart. He knows full well what his sass will suggest to people, especially in the large numbers outlined in this tale. He also inspires loyalty from those that serve him, 
as his page saving him from the king's men indicates. Maybe I'm being unfair and raping Giuseppe into a tale type not his own, and I should let him stand alone as his own type of hero. He was at least merry, brave and clever, and there are worse traits in a hero and in a husband. So, we should get to that ricotta in history and folklore. Italian folktales are absolutely full of the most amazing food imagery, and there's a wonderful article by Terry Windling if you'd like to read more. But we need to consider ricotta as an actual food. Can you picture it in its natural setting, all fresh and gleaming white against a hot, dusty landscape with a deep blue sky above a dark sea as far as you can bear to look? I can, and it isn't the same as a very slightly grey creature we get when we tip it out from the tub from the supermarket. It's meant to be eaten very fresh, and we don't get that here. We get a facsimile, but we accept it as the closest we can get to make dishes we love that contain it. It isn't also, strictly speaking, a cheese, because it's made from heating the whey that has come from an earlier cheese making at a high heat with a little fresh milk and then scooping off the curds. It's heated twice, hence the name ricotta, which means twice cooked. It's meant to be eaten with a day. Like most of its cousins in the Italian cheese family, ricotta is so old that its origins are nearly impossible to place. Some even believe the practice of reusing leftover whey started with cheese making itself in the Neolithic period. However, more importantly, most agree that ricotta came to mainland Italy from Sicily, the spare whey practice migrating when Arabs conquered and ruled Sicily. You can make it with cows, goats or sheep's milk, but the best Sicilian version is made from sheep's milk. There is a reasonable amount of evidence that ricotta was an old cheese, starting first with the Greek writer Athenus, 170 to 230 Common Era, who wrote of a soft Sicilian cheese that he ate at a banquet. We don't know if this was definitely ricotta, but it certainly sounds like it. If it was, then this may have been the first written record of the cheese. The Tacunium Sanitas, the Latin translation of the Arab physician Ibn Brutlan of Baghdad, 11th century health handbook, however, holds the very first illustration of ricotta being made. It shows a family standing over a boiling cauldron in a cottage courtyard. So, that's some history. But what about folklore? There was certainly more than I was expecting, and it isn't all Italian. The Aulis is actually ancient Greek, and they thought ricotta cheese was discovered by Artiseo, son of the god Apollo and the nymph Cyrene. Some also say it's the cheese that Odysseus and his men stole from Polythemus the Cyclops in Homer's Odyssey, but this isn't explicit in the text, just cheese. The Italians believe we have ricotta to thank for the painting genius of Giotto. Apparently Giotto was a shepherd as a young boy and inspired by the loveliness of a ricotta breakfast, carved a picture of a sheep and a bowl of ricotta onto a rock. A passing painting master known as Simabue was eating some of Giotto's ricotta as he journeyed and noticed the carving. So impressed, he agreed to teach the young Giotto to paint, and the rest is history. Now, to some slightly risque folklore, due to various reasons associated with how it was believed men's bodies worked, and the fact that this cheese in particular was made by heating liquid to a high temperature and creamy curds rising to the top, Sperm-related sexual innuendo abounded throughout the Renaissance, and cheese-making and cheese were a metaphor for sexual activity. If you'd like to read more about the cultural theories that involve this, you should investigate the works of Sandra Ott from 1993 and Patricia Simons from 2011. There was also the suggestion, connected loosely to this, that shepherds who made the best mountain cheeses were also the best at causing or preventing their wives' pregnancies, and this was actually still believed up until the 1970s. 
if you'd like to see something a little more visual about ricotta specifically and this topic then i can suggest the ricotta eaters by vincenzo campi from around 1585 which is mentioned in patricia simon's work you are entirely free to make your own interpretation that's what art is all about after all in additional evidence of the connection of ricotta to sex and fertility, in Calabria, cheesemakers produce ricotta affumicata di mamola, a regional product eaten at feasts to celebrate fertility. Before smoking, the cheese is fashioned into a facsimile of a certain male body part and is then sliced and shaved onto various dishes. I must be honest, I could only find one source that this is true, but I couldn't resist it. They definitely make this cheese in this community, and there is photographic evidence of its shape. It is also mentioned that the cheese was connected to fertility. And there definitely is an annual feast of the smoked ricotta, and a feast of the flavours held here too. But whether the story about the fertility feasts and the cheese is true or not requires better Italian than I possess. I think we've reached a natural end with that, so it only remains for me to share my recipe for spinach and ricotta lasagna. Except I'm a bit worried about letting it out into the world, because it's not very polished. I mean, I've been making it for years, although sometimes I do use cannelloni, and that's also delicious. The real problem is that I make it for the dish and the amount of people I'm serving, so the amounts are not the same every time. In the link in the show notes, I've given the recipe for a specific size dish, but you are very willing, very welcome to take this recipe and do with it as you will. This has been a wonderful welcome back um, to the new year for me. I've really enjoyed researching both this tale and ricotta. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And I hope to welcome you back soon to another episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. <laughs>